The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Timothy 1, 3-14. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Duncan, for that. So we're in this sermon series called Life Together where we're walking through 2 Timothy. And it's a, the focus of this series really is, is largely on the local church. Why, why does the church exist? Um, what does it mean for us to be a part of it? And uh, this passage really kind of deals with the foundational idea, and that is that as the people of God, we're possessors of the gospel, that we carry it with us, that we understand it, that we live it out, that we study it, that it's a part of our lives. Uh, I had something happen this week uh, I got a, actually in the last week and a half or so, I was issued a new computer at work. Um, anybody get stressed out when it's time to get a new computer? It, it's, it's, I think it's a pretty universal experience, right? Because so much can go wrong, right? You, you, your whole life is kind of on this thing. And even though you're getting a new machine, you know, what if in the process that you lose everything? All of my stuff is on a cloud, which should be comforting, except for I don't exactly know what that means. Um, I know it means that it's somewhere other than the hard drive of my computer, but I don't know where it is. But I had this, part of the reason I get nervous about getting a new machine is uh, because of the whole having to sign on for stuff, you know, like your, your old computer knows everything. It knows your usernames and passwords. And when you get a new one, a lot of times you have to redo this. You have to start up or or you have to sign back into things. And the truth is, 
There are a lot of instances where I don't know my username and password. And it's not my fault, if I'm being honest with you, because when I tried to sign in the first time, I said, here's my username, and it said, no, that one's taken. And so, you know, you try to find a new one, right? And so you come up with something, at least I come up with something that's close, but it's Close doesn't help if you don't remember what it is. And then you do a password, and it's like, well, hey, I have a standard password that I use for everything. And it says, yeah, but it's not strong enough. You need to add a character, a number, a symbol. And then, you know, so I try to do something that I think I'll remember, and I don't write it down. And, and then, you know, what ends up happening is you have this username, and you have this password, and the whole purpose of it is to guard your information from nefarious people who want to bring destruction upon your life, right? And so you guard it, but then in the process, I have this sensitive data that, yes, I'm keeping from the bad guys, but also now I'm keeping it from myself because I don't know how to get to it either. So I haven't guarded it. I mean, I've guarded it, but not in a way where I've guarded it for something. It's just gone. And we, we do this, right? We do this with a lot of things in life where we, 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 we do it with the gospel. We do it with the gospel where, where we're people who, who will um, struggle to remember what the content of the gospel actually is in our lives. We'll, we'll, we'll believe it, but, we'll, but the question is, are we people who intimately embrace it? What does it mean to guard the gospel? Because that's what Paul's talking about in this passage to Timothy. What does it mean to guard something in such a way to where you're not just protecting it, but you're preserving it? What does it look like to do this? Is it, it looks like we're familiar, intimately familiar with, with Scripture, that our, that our nose is in the book, right? That your nose is in God's Word, that you're growing in a relationship with Him. To guard the gospel is to do more than just try to um, discern what might assail the truth of the gospel. Right? We live in a culture right now where a lot of people devote themselves to just looking for heretics, Right? But that's not guarding the gospel. Uh, what's guarding the gospel is taking something and making it intimately familiar to ourselves. To guard the gospel is to know it. It's to see through the lens of it in every area of life. It's to become increasingly aware of where we stand with God because of it. Paul uses some language about the gospel in this passage that's beautiful. Um, he, he, he talks about it as a deposit that has been entrusted to Timothy. And this idea of, of a deposit being entrusted to Timothy, one of the things that that means is it means that the gospel didn't begin with Timothy. It didn't begin with him. It didn't begin with Paul. It didn't begin with any of us the day that we first believed or the day that we first took an interest in learning theology, right? That's not when the gospel started. That's not when Christianity started. What we learn from this passage, what we're reminded of, is we actually, if we have a relationship with Christ, what we have is a spiritual heritage. And we have something that we have inherited that's existed for a long time. And Paul, when he's talking about this with Timothy, he traces it back. He uses this term um, in, in, in verse uh, 3. He talks about his ancestors, his spiritual ancestors, his forefathers. 
And what he's saying is he's saying that Timothy has the spiritual lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people going all the way back to the Old Testament, that Timothy has inherited a faith that is connected to the Abraham that Paul studied as a child growing up as a Jew. And his conversion was a matter, Paul's conversion was a matter of recognizing that the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham were perfectly fulfilled in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, you have a spiritual heritage and he even gets really uh, down into his own family, right? And he talks about his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois and he talks about their faith and how Timothy comes from the example set by his mother and his grandmother that was passed down to him by them. What's interesting about this passage is, you know, when you hear that, well, this is your faith of your grandmother and your mother, you would think that he was kind of raised as a baby and his mother was raised as a baby with Christianity as a part of their home. We know that can't be the case because of when this book was written, Christ had lived and died and risen again during their lifetimes. And so the church is a new thing. And yet in Paul's missionary journeys, which Billy talked about last week, he went through Lystra and he preached the gospel and Lois and Eunice came to faith and Timothy was witness to their coming to faith and now he has become a believer as well. And so that's part of his spiritual heritage is that he comes from this example of faith that was set for him by his mother and by his grandmother. And Paul delights in this. He delights in this. If you're, if you're a parent, if you have kids and your desire is for your children to grow to know and love Christ as you do, this is a tremendously encouraging passage for us because here's why. It's because what Paul is reminding Timothy, what he's saying to Timothy is he's saying God is a God of means. God can do whatever he wants to do, but God works through means. And one of the most historical primary means that he has used to pass the gospel from one generation to the next has been the family, right? As he uses the faith of parents as a foundation for the development, the, the development of a spiritual life of a child. And what does he tell parents? He says, I want you to talk to your children about me as though I am their God because he is their God. You say, I want you, when you're walking down the road, when you're tucking them in at night, when you're sitting down for a meal, always be talking about me, telling them about me. Why? Because this is a means that the Lord uses to pass down faith from one generation to the next, and he is pleased to do this. And so it's encouraging to see it here, that this is a method that the Lord uses to transfer faith from one generation to the, to the next, and Timothy is on the receiving end of that. Well... Then he says something to Timothy that's kind of curious, and he says, Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. And later he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And later still he says, guard it. Guard it like it's a deposit that has been entrusted to you. Why would Paul tell Timothy to fan the call to gospel faithfulness into flame? Is because it would die without Timothy doing that? Is it because the gospel flame is dying within Timothy as he's writing? That's not what's happening. What Paul is saying is something that applies to all of us. And what he's saying is this, the gospel is something that calls for 
unending attention. That we never exhaust all there is to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That for the days that we've been given on this earth, our call is to attend to it, is to study it, is to know it, is to rehearse it, is to peer into it more deeply, is to look for pictures of the gospel happening in the world around us. I I sent an email out to the congregation. If you're not on our church email list, uh, let me or Melanie know, and we'll make sure that we get you on that. Um, But I had this happen this week where I saw the gospel in something, and and it it set my wheels in motion. And What I saw the gospel in was part of... So, you know, my son, Theo, uh, had open-heart surgery last, last week. I just got a text from my wife today saying that he gets to come home today. Uh, so we are pumped. We're thrilled about that. Um, it's, it's, it's a good sign uh, that this many days out from surgery, he's being cleared to, to come home. So continue to pray for him because it's a pretty major thing that he went through and that he's still going through. But um, good things are happening. But one of the things that was part of the process is in order for him to be released from the hospital and sent home, he had to meet a series of benchmarks, and he had to, uh, they had to, there were a series of protocols that had to be met. You know, things like his blood oxygen had to be at a certain range uh, that they felt comfortable with, that, you know, that he was connected to nothing, there was nothing connected to him that was connected to the hospital wall, right? <laughs> so, the, so they had to get him, you know, through these, through these steps. One of the protocols, one of the benchmarks for him to be cleared to go home was Lisa and I had to take a child CPR class. And I just saw the gospel all over that because I thought, oh, for his well-being, somebody else has to do something for him. And it reminded me of that passage in Hebrews that that talks about how Christ lives to intercede for us. And I thought, this is what we're doing with Theo in this class is we're, we're living to intercede for him, right? That we are learning this life-sustaining procedure in the event that he would require it because he wouldn't be able to do it for himself. I'm like, that is a picture of the gospel, is, is that Christ lives to intercede for us in a way kind of like we live to intercede for Theo, that he's doing something for me to sustain me and to preserve me that I can't do for myself, that he has to be the one to do it. And so we learn, right? We learn to to look for the gospel in the world around us. We learn to see it in places. We say, ah, this helps me. It's an analogy, and analogies all break break down at a certain point, and yet it's also a picture, right, of something that is true, and I've been thinking about it ever since we, we did that. The gospel is not something that we embrace once and then move on from. Right? It's something that we, we don't just embrace it once and leave it alone like a username and a password. Right? We, 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 we take it up. We tend to it. We tend to it like, like a fire. That's the image here. All of us had the experience this week where we stepped outside of our house and we said, it's happening. Right? Fall in Nashville is happening. It's one of the best things Nashville does is autumn. And we got a taste of it. I don't know if it's going to be 90 degrees in three days. I don't know. But what I do know is it's in the 70s right now, and it's getting into the 50s at night, and it's fire pit weather, isn't it? And what do you do when you have a fire pit going? You tend to it, right? You you feed it. You 
poke around and you restack things and you situate yourself and you can, it's, it's very active, even though it's also, you know, something that you just sit around, you're, you're, at least I am, constantly fiddling with it. And it's this idea that Paul is saying, he's saying, tend to the fire of the gospel in your own life, tend to it. Learn about God's grace, ponder Christ's life, ponder his death, ponder his resurrection and the implications of it. It, 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 it's, it's, the, it's through his life and his death and his resurrection that this power, this, our salvation is already completed in Christ. And yet, it's something that we still need to return to and we still need to hear over and over and over again. So what is that gospel? Paul gives a, a pretty succinct summary of the gospel. And what I want to do for the remainder of this message is I want to unpack the picture of the gospel that he gives. And then uh, I want to walk through the elements of a corporate worship service and talk about where we see the gospel at work in the things that we do when we gather for church. Um, so I, I love this sermon for, the, for that reason, is, is when, when we think about the order and the structure of worship service, we're thinking about how, how can we engage with the whole gospel in the things that we do. Uh, during a worship service. So in just a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through from, from benediction or from call to worship to benediction. But first, let's talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that is presented here. What is the gospel? How does Paul summarize it? Uh, borrowing from uh, an outline that John Stott offered in his, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, which he calls Guard the Gospel, um, Paul points out uh, three things about the gospel here. The first is the character of the gospel. In, in other words, what is it? What is the gospel? Uh, the source, the second thing is he talks about the source of the gospel. Where does it come from? Uh, and then third, he talks about the foundation of the gospel. On what does it rest? And these are truths that, that we are called to know intimately. So let me unpack those very briefly. The first is the character of salvation. What is it? What is salvation? Salvation is, Paul says here, from beginning to end, it's a work of God. It's something that God does. This restoring us to relationship with him is something that he is the prime mover. So, so what he says in this is Paul says that God, in verse 9, he says God saved, right? And he, he saved us and he called us with a holy calling. And then in verse 10, he brought life and immortality to light. And if God is the one who do, does these things and the things he does save and they bring to life, then there is an urgency to the gospel. It's important. It matters to us if it brings life and salvation. But he calls us too. God is the one who calls us, meaning that he saves for a purpose of, of living holy lives until we join him in eternity. He calls us not just to be in relationship with him, but to also be his witnesses in the world. And so the gospel is a work of God from beginning to end. It's something that he does, salvation. What's the source of the salvation? The origin, Paul says here in verse 9, as he says, the origin of salvation began in Christ from all eternity. Which is a good reminder for us, especially in a very individualistic culture, um, that your salvation did not begin the day that you first believed. It's not like you saw the gospel with some clarity and all of a sudden Christianity was a thing, right? It's that we, we, we step into something that has been going on from all eternity. It's part of an eternal plan that is founded in God's purpose to actually glorify his son, which makes us then collateral 
in the salvation process, right? The purpose of salvation and redemption before it's about restoring us to a right relationship with God is about God giving glory to his own son as the savior of the world. And it's important that we keep that order straight, right? That the love of God for me is a manifestation and a reflection of the love of God for his son. And so salvation is a part of that. Is God glorifying his son by making him the savior of the world who happens to save us. We're saved by grace through faith and not by our own works. So that's the source of salvation is the work of Christ from all eternity. The foundation of, the, of salvation is asking the question, how can we know that it's secure? How can we know that it won't collapse? And the answer, of course, is because of what Christ has already done. He says this in verse 10. He says that salvation now has been manifested through the appearing of Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh and he abolished death, bringing eternal life by his finished work on the cross. He accomplished something real for us. His life for ours. And so that's the essence of the gospel, that we needed to be saved, needed to be saved because we were far from God in our sin, and God saved us, and he called us with a holy calling. Without that, we're hopelessly lost, but he saved us, and he saved us, he saved those who believe through an eternal plan by sending his son Jesus to live and die in our place, defeating the power of death forever. And what God has done then affects everything. It affects every aspect of our lives. It affects how we relate to other people. It affects how we think about our responsibility as citizens in a nation, right? It affects our, our, how we think about our ethics. It, it, it affects everything. And so we're called then to be intimately familiar with the gospel. That's what it means to guard the gospel is to be intimately familiar with it, to internalize it. Do you remember a number of years ago there was a movie called The Book of Eli uh, with Denzel Washington? It's, it's, the statute of limitations has run out. I feel like I can spoil the movie uh, because if you haven't seen it by now, you don't have a plan to see it. And so it's on you, really. Um, but The Book of Eli is about its post-apocalyptic era, and Denzel Washington is, is um, blind, and he is trying to make his way to a mysterious, um, well, he's trying to make his way to a library, and he's transporting something, and you don't know what he's transporting throughout the movie, and then you learn that he's transporting the Bible, and there are people that are trying to stop him from preserving the Bible and they're trying to destroy him, and they're trying to destroy the Bible. And they actually, and he has these, this Braille-bound Bible that he's carrying with him, and that's, that's what he's trying, that's the book of Eli, right? And so he, the, the bad guys get it from him, but he still makes it to the library. And the turn in the movie is he has it memorized. And so he recites it to the uh, scribe who's there who copies it all down. It's a beautiful picture, right, of how, of how the scripture is supposed to work. It's supposed to be something that we don't just carry around with us, but it's something that we carry inside of us, that we become intimately familiar with it. Now, you'll never need to see that movie 
which is a bummer, because it's a good movie. Anyway, but that's, that, that's how we do it, is we guard the gospel by being intimately familiar with it. And one of the ways we do that is by being a part of a church community, is by being a part of a local body. And we see the gospel working out in the things that are common to our time together. And so what I want to do is I want to close by asking the question, where do we see and where do we love and where do we guard the gospel when we worship together as one people? So I want to walk through uh, in a very brief fashion the elements of a worship service and just talk about where we see the gospel in these things. And I want to start with the call to worship because the call to worship is the first thing we do, right, in a worship service. And I've said many times from, from here that it's not just the starting pistol to the worship service that tells us, okay, it's happening now, we're doing it, but that the gospel is in the reading of the call to worship. The gospel is in the participating in the call to worship. Why? Well, we go back to Eden, right? Go back to the Garden of Eden when the man and the woman took the fruit that God told them not to touch, and they, they lied and said that they didn't take it, and everything came to light. What did God say to them? He said, go. He said, go. And he put them outside of the Garden of Eden, outside of fellowship with him, and he stationed angels with flaming swords in front of the gate to the garden so that they could not pass. A few chapters later in the book of Genesis, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, right, where the people are gathered together and they're trying to broach the throne room of God by building a tower. And they're building this massive structure that's going high up into the sky. And what does the Lord do? He confuses them. He confuses their language. All of the people are there. They're working together to do something, all speaking the same language. And then all of a sudden, God intervenes in a way to where now they don't understand each other at all. And all they can do is put down their tools and walk away sad. Because how are they supposed to coordinate this if they can't even talk to each other? And so they're put out of fellowship with one another in that. When we hear the call to worship, what do we hear? We hear the undoing of that, right? We hear the undoing of that. We hear God, by the finished work of Christ, bidding us, come. Come into my presence, not as individuals in isolation, but as one people speaking one language, united by one purpose. And that is to approach the throne of grace with all boldness. The gospel is in the call to worship because we're called to worship before God as one people. It's an overturning of the effects of the fall when we read the call to worship. It's a reminder to us that God is not saying to us, go, but he's saying, come. Singing in worship. We sing in worship, right? Think about this. There aren't many occasions where you get in a room and you sing with other people. There are even fewer occasions where you get in a room and you sing with other people and you don't know some of them, right? But we do at church. Why do we sing? What's the purpose of that? It's all through Scripture, the Lord calling his people to sing. I think part of it is this, and this is where I think we see the gospel, is there's a self-forgetfulness in singing. God made us with minds and he made us with hearts, 
And the two are meant to inform one another, right? They were designed to work together. The mind was meant to inform the heart. The heart was meant to respond with joy to what we know about the grace of Christ. And when we sing tunes, that are, singing tunes that are, it tunes our hearts to sing his praise. It draws us out of ourselves. It draws us into fellowship with our church family. Singing is a pretty intimate act. And God calls his people to practice the intimacy of self-forgetfulness when we get together in extolling his glory and his beauty together. And so the beauty of singing together in worship is that it has very little to do with us, right? It's, it's an invitation from God to set our minds and our hearts on him. One of my favorite parts of a worship service is the doxology at the end because uh, Joe and I were just talking about this actually last week. It's because I get to be here, right? Which means I get to hear your voices and there's always people harmonizing and every once in a while there's a, a small child who is really into it um, and it's the best thing ever, right? It's the best thing ever. I love hearing the beauty of the people of God singing about his glory and his greatness. We pray in worship, right? In prayer, we remember what? That God is not silent, that he's not deaf, that he's not distant, that he's not sleeping. Scripture tells us, cast our cares upon Christ. Because why? Because he cares for us. And so Ephesians 3 tells us this, that in him, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I love how Paul labors in that verse to say boldness, access, confidence, to really reinforce for us that when we talk to God, he hears us, that he listens to us, that he receives our prayers. We give in worship. Giving is a part of our worship. It's not an interruption to it. It's a part of it. Because in giving, what are we doing? We're, 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 we're guarding the gospel by letting go of our grip on the things of this world. Um, there's a wonderful passage on this, on giving, uh, in 1 Chronicles 29. It's the last chapter of 1 Chronicles. Uh, and it's, it's powerful. Because it's David, and he's, and he's praying a prayer. He's, he's responding to an offering. Uh, the people of Israel have taken up an offering for the building of Jerusalem. And David is looking at the offering that has been gathered, and he's responding to the Lord about it. And here's what he says. He says, who am I and what is my people that we'd be able to offer thus willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. In other words, what he's saying is everything that I have to give you came from you. And so... I see the generosity and I see the, 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 the willingness of the people to offer up their resources and to offer up themselves to you. But in fact, what we're doing is we're just giving to you what you've given to us. We're just returning back to you that. And in that act of giving, what we're acknowledging, acknowledging is we're acknowledging the providence and the, and the provision of God. We're acknowledging that he takes care of us. We're acknowledging a couple of things, really. One thing we're acknowledging is, because, is he is a God of means, and that one of the means that the Lord uses to care for this world is he uses the local church. And so we're acknowledging that the Lord is a God of means who uses his people to build his kingdom. 
But the other thing is we're acknowledging that he's already faithfully provided for us, that he gives us what he needs, that he means it when he says, look at the birds of the air. You don't see them toiling away and laboring, and your father loves you more than he loves them. Why would he not give you everything that you need if he provides for them so freely? The Lord takes care of us. It may not always be the way we want him to, right? He may have a different budget for us than the one that we like. He may have, he, you know, the, 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 what, is, what does Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? He says, give us this day our what? Daily bread? I know that some of us would say monthly would be much better. Uh, give me an annual food supply and, you know, let me just know that I know that I know that it's okay. But what is he doing? He's referring to manna, right? He's referring to the Lord's daily provision. And God's saying, this is the way I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me to provide for you on a daily basis, all the time. I don't want you to ever have a day where you're not thinking of me as your provider because you've only ever had one provider. Word and sacrament. This is a big part of our worship service, right? It's the reading of scripture. It's the preaching of a sermon, which is what I'm doing right now. It's the coming to the Lord's table. It's baptism. But this is the part where we get into the text of scripture and the application of scripture as given to us by Christ. Scripture is God's word to his people. So if in prayer we're talking to the Lord and we're saying he hears us, in word and sacrament what we're saying is he also speaks to us. He speaks to us. And he gives us his word, which Paul says later in this letter, we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, he says, Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. In reading and preaching the word with the sacraments, we're seeking to hear from the Lord himself. Every week we come to the Lord's table to remember that the saving work of the gospel is already accomplished, right? We, we say it in the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Right, as we're confessing that the work of the gospel has already happened, that the way has been made. In baptism, it's reminding us of the same truth, that we have a place where we belong, that we belong with him. And then we conclude with a benediction, right? Benediction means good word. Benediction, good word. We don't just leave the worship service when it's over. We're sent from the worship service when it's over. Why are we sent? We're sent because we're commissioned people, right? We have, a, we have, we have work to do. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have a role in this world to be witnesses for Christ. And so we're sent with the purpose of living out what it is that we've sung and what it is that we've read and what it is that we've heard and what we've tasted and what we've seen. We close each service with God's word sending us out with confidence in his power and in the purpose of his great commission to proclaim him to all the world and in the hope of eternity where all shall be made well. That's what we're called to be a part of. And so we're sent out with the word of benediction. And so my prayer for us is this, that God would work in us a vision so that we see his power and we see the gospel in everything, that he's sharpening our vision to see it in our coming to corporate worship and in our going out from corporate worship into a world that is so hungry for the gospel. I pray that he would spare us, all of us, from being people who only observe the lack of a gospel in others and that we would be people who are hungry to be filled with the gospel ourselves and in any person where we see the lack of the gospel, it would not be for the purpose of scorn, 
but it would be for the purpose of bearing witness in love to the truth of the risen Christ. I pray that we, by God's grace, would be people who adore the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we love it, that we love him, that we immerse ourselves in the study of his word and that we love his people. And above all, we delight in him every time we remember what Paul wrote here in verses 9 and 10, that he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I pray that we would guard the gospel as people who love it. And we love it more than life itself. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, for the places in scripture that remind us that you're a God who calls us to repetition. Uh, that you call us to rehearse things, to return, to, to have some ritual, uh, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table where we do things again and again, and as often as we do them, we do them with the responsibility and the call to remember. Uh, and so, Lord, would you make us to be people who, uh, who practice uh, the, the art of being intimately engaged with your word and with your gospel? Uh, and uh, Lord, we thank you for wiring us this way to be people who, um, who can continue to, to grow and understand and that you would give us eyes to see more and more the depth of the beauty of your work uh, in the world and in our lives. Send us when we go from this place. Send us as people with a purpose uh, to proclaim your goodness wherever we go. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.